0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. We're going to look at one verse from 2 Corinthians and then follow that by looking at a verse in the book of 1 Corinthians. These will serve as the texts for the morning message and will be supported by other passages of Scripture from the book of 1 Corinthians as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, reads this way. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Now, you may want to hold your place there and then go to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verse 45. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five reads as follows. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. How would you measure your manhood? I know I'm dividing the audience by asking that question. What is it that really makes a man? Popular culture has embodied its concept of what a real man is in figures, in cinematic history at least, like James Bond. Whether it's Sean Connery or Daniel Craig fulfilling the role, we sort of envy and look up sometimes as men to these spies. And then others would choose Jason Bourne, Matt Damon's personage. And we would admire him because of how violent he is, how strong he is, how clever he is, in working his way out of seemingly impossible situations. Some might choose Denzel Washington, equalizing every situation which he finds himself in. I'm particularly fond of A Man on Fire. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm a Denzel fan for sure. But when we go to popular culture for our understanding of what the proper measure of manhood is, we do ourselves a great disservice. We make no positive contribution to our world, really, because we ignore the fact that the second or last Adam is the true picture of manhood. The measure of a man is not his contemporaries' to compare ourselves with others Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10:12 is to play the fool. Here's why it's so foolish that we measure ourselves by other men or we compare ourselves with others. Here's why it's so foolish because every person I might compare myself or measure myself with or by is a flawed human being. And what we see on the outside is rarely what is on the inside of such people. People are flawed. Therefore, it's foolish to compare ourselves or measure ourselves by other people. It's also foolish because there are two responses we can have at least when we compare ourselves with our peers. The first one would be that we come out on top as we assess our own lives in comparison to other men's lives, We think, well, you know, I'm really better than he is. Well, that's something that panders to our pride. And we know what God thinks about pride. The Bible says in the book of 1 Peter and also in the book of James, God opposes the proud. I don't want to be on that side of God. Because when he opposes, he disposes. Well, here's the other possibility. When I compare myself to others, and I've had both of these responses, by the way, I'm speaking from personal experience. Sometimes we end up hating ourselves because we fall short of the standard that we choose that is not an accurate standard or measurement of manhood. And when we hate ourselves, we're really sinning again. Why? Because we're hating that which is created in God's image. Even though the image of God is marred in our lives by our sin, nevertheless, the image is still there. So we're fools, really, men, when we use our contemporaries, our peers, as the measure of our own manhood. There's only one proper comparison. Only one proper measuring stick. And that is the second Adam, Jesus in First Corinthians 15:45, if you look at it again, so also it is written: the first man, Adam, became a living soul. But that's not all the story, as it relates to Adam, is it? He got himself in a bad way because he chose to disobey God, and he fell from grace, is what we call it—the fall, fall from a relationship uh, with God that was being lived out in a perfect human being. Adam was perfect in every way. Adam was perfect. We have no way of knowing how many years passed between the creation of this perfect human being, the prototype that God gave to us of what a man was to be, and his falling into sin. But the rest, as they say, is history. And Adam's history is lived out in all of us. Because the Bible teaches us that we inherited the sinful nature from our ancestor Adam. Every human being who's ever been born is a sinner by nature with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Adam fell. And we, in a sense, fell in Adam's sin. Because we come by sin quite naturally. Christ is described here in verse 45 as the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Hold that thought. It's a critically important understanding of that idea. It's not simply an idea. It's a truth. If we grasp that, men, or you ladies too, it relates to you too, but I'm speaking primarily to men today. If we grasp that the second Adam is... An opportunity that we have again. If we're in Christ, what does the Bible say about us? We are new creations. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're in process. But we're being processed by the Holy Spirit of God. He is our sanctifier. He uses the Word of God as the means whereby we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's working in us. He's urging us. He's disciplining us. He's doing what He does best in conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank God. Our situation, if we're in Christ, is an ideal situation for using Jesus as our measurement of our manhood. Let's think about Jesus. He is a faithful being, isn't He? From time immemorial. Jesus has been faithful. Even before there was time, Jesus was faithful. Remember, He was God before He became a man. He remains God to this moment and will forever be God. He is also human from the time of His conception in His mother Mary's womb. He became a human being and He retains His humanity. When He was raised from the dead, He was not raised as a phantom. He's not some sort of specter or ghost or spirit. He was raised from the dead as a human being. And I am convinced that Jesus wears His humanity with great joy because He knows that He had to become one of us to allay our fears about death, to destroy the works of the devil, to give us hope in this life and eternal life. Jesus, our life-giving Spirit, is human. Jesus was faithful before He became one of us, and He was faithful since having become one of us. In 2 Timothy 2.13, the Word of God tells us, if we are faithless, and we are, even as followers we're faithless, He remains faithful. He is incapable of anything but faithfulness. Back up one step with me, if you will. Jesus has been faithful to the Father, as I mentioned, from eternity past, and He will be in the future as well. He came, He said, by His own description of Himself, not to do His own will, but the will of the Father. He was faithful to God the Father. He was faithful also to His human family. He was faithful in a most poignant moment to His mother Mary, when Jesus is attached to the cross with long nails through His wrists and through His feet, and He was battered. The Bible talks about in Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant mentioning Jesus for sure that He would be unrecognizable. He had been so battered and beaten flogged, his face was beaten with fists, a crown of thorns jammed down on his head and beaten by the soldiers as they mocked him, giving him a robe of royalty to mock him with. And Jesus was on the cross and He looked to His mother. Now remember, Jesus couldn't really move. There was some movement. When He would exhale, He would move. And then as his body sagged, he would have to rotate his wrists around those awful nails to raise himself up to get a breath. And that went on for six hours while Jesus was on the cross. Can you believe it? And in between exhaling and inhaling, he speaks to John, his beloved disciple. And he looks at him. And as he looks at him, he said, Behold your mother and he turned his head to Mary and looked at her. And then he said to Mary, Behold your son, as he went back and looked at John. What can we say except to say that Jesus was faithful to his mother to the bitter end of his life? But he's also faithful to another family, to a spiritual family, of which we who know Jesus are a part. Turn to Mark chapter 3 for a moment. Jesus has been teaching in his hometown. He's been in controversy with the religious leaders of that area. His mother and brothers have come to ask him to come home and quit making a fool out of himself and embarrassing the family. Verse 31 of Mark 3 says, And his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him. Can you see the scene? Jesus is seated teaching. He assumed the position of a rabbi. Rabbis in Jesus' day did not stand up like I'm doing today to teach or preach. They sat down and people would sit under their teaching. Here these people were mesmerized, hanging on every word which Jesus uttered because He had the words of life. And His words were different from the other teachers of the day. They were simply echoes of other teachers who were not speaking the Word of God. But here was God in the flesh speaking. He looks around at them and then He says, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister, or she is my sister and my mother. Do you know Jesus formed a different family, didn't He? As far as we know, all the members of His natural family are in the eternal family too. Thank God for that. You know, Mary was. And then James, who was the next oldest in line, he suffered from sibling rivalry big time. We know that because of things which we read. And some of the other brothers might have too. And he had sisters as well. Their names are not given to us. But probably all of them are with the Lord today through the influence of the Holy Spirit on their lives. But we who know Jesus, now catch this. He is faithful to us. We're His family. The Bible actually describes Jesus in this way. He is our big brother. He is our elder brother. Wouldn't you like to have a big brother like Jesus? When the devil comes to pick on you and me, who is standing at our side representing us to God the Father? It is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. He's our brother. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. These are His own words. And He has been true and faithful to us too. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. And just like Jesus laid down His life for the church, meaning He died for us to purchase us out of bondage to set us free, just as Jesus did that for us because He loved us, guys, here's an application for us. We are to be faithful men. Throughout our lives, we are to honor our fathers and our mothers. Without question, we're to honor them. That's the Word of God. And it's the first commandment with a promise. What is the promise? We will have a long life if we honor our father and our mother. And there are many times that our mothers and fathers are not honorable. But that's beside the point. We honor them anyway. Why? Because God tells us to do it. We honor them. And men, what about our wives? Are we to honor our wives? We are to treat them with honor. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us this. And if we do not treat them with honor, the result is God won't even listen to our prayers. The heavens are like brass, men. Is it possible that your prayers are not being answered? Because you're not honoring your wife? Laying down your life for her like Jesus laid down His life for us. Christ is faithful. This is a real man. A faithful man. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, a faithful man who can find. Faithful men were in short supply in Solomon's day. 3,000 years ago. And they are in short supply today. Men, we need to rise up. Oh, rise up, oh men of God. And be like Jesus Christ. Be men who are faithful to all those in your life. First of all, to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but certainly to the people whom He has put in your life. Christ is gentle. As we read from Matthew 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus describes Himself as gentle. A lot of people make fun of Jesus. They think He's some kind of namby-pamby Mr. Milk Toast, some kind of wimp. Well, they don't know much about Jesus when they draw that conclusion. He is gentle, but we have a misconception about what gentleness is. We're helped to understand... The idea that the word which Jesus chooses, translated gentle by most of our translations, is a word which was used to describe persons or things who have in them a certain soothing quality. Two weeks ago, or three, I can't remember how long it's been, we looked at the person of David and we looked at one of his wives, Abigail. Before she was his wife, she was the wife of a fool. His name was Nabal. That's what his name meant, you may recall. And David very courteously sent an envoy to Nabal. David had 400 fighting men. And without even being asked what they would do, they would patrol the area where David and his men were camping. And they would make sure that no rustlers would come in and steal the livestock of shepherds or landowners in that area. Nabal was an incredibly wealthy man and he had benefit benefited immensely from the work of David's men. So David said, and it was customary by the way, it was like tipping in a restaurant, customary. This was not unusual. David sent his envoy and let this man Nabal know that his Animals had been safe. His shepherds had been safe because of what his men and he had done. And then Nabal said, Who is David anyway? He knew who David was. Nobody lived in that day in Israel who did not know who David was. And he was from the same tribe as David. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was a Calebite. And we know Caleb was of the tribe of Judah, as was David and as was Jesus for that matter. But nevertheless... We know where Abigail came up and what did she do? She found out what was happening. She got a bunch of food together. She took it with her servants and she met David and she bowed before him. And then she said, Sir, please reconsider. Don't fall into the trap of becoming a murderer. David was furious He had his sword strapped on, and all 400 of his men had their swords strapped on. They were going to wipe out everybody in Nabal's camp. David thought about it, and the words of Abigail soothed. They were gentle words. How many times have potential wars been thwarted by gentle words? This word was also used in biblical times. Of an ointment which can soothe the pain of an open wound. When I was a child, I remember the treatment that my mother would give to me when I got some kind of cut or something that needed attention. And the choice that my mother would make was this choice alcohol or alcohol. That was it. (laughs) And oh my goodness. I would start screaming before she ever put it on the wound. And then something miraculous happened. Somebody invented Bactine. Does anybody remember Bactine? Oh, it was so good. I don't know if it did any good to serve as an antiseptic or a healing agent, but it was so good. Why? It did not sting, right? Well, this picture from biblical times, an ointment is gentle which can soothe the pain. Of an ulcerous wound. Plato, in his work *The Laws*, uses this word of a child asking a doctor to treat him in the gentlest possible way. And it looks like being mean, doesn't it? Sometimes when doctors do things. Now my son's not a doctor, but he's a good dad. I was in his home a week ago tomorrow, and my little granddaughter, two years and a half old, got a splinter in her hand while she was playing outside, and she was hurting. She was crying, oh, my hand. She said, my hand, my hand. And then my daughter-in-law got some tweezers to get this splinter out, and she was not having any luck because my granddaughter was so fretful. And then my son gets over, and this little kid began to cry more, and he's working on it, and he gets that out. It didn't look like it was doing much good, did it? But it did, thank God. could have been worse. But we know that the gentle word, the gentle act, is something that is very positive in any number of situations. Cyrus, the Persian king, is described as gentle and forgiving of human errors because he acted kindly towards an officer who had failed in his mission. Other emperors were known to take the heads off of people who failed in the mission which they were given. But not so Cyrus, the Persian emperor. Xenophon, who was a Greek historian in the days of Xenophon, the Persians, used this word for the kindly and patient way in which an officer trained and treated the recruits which he had. Many of you have been to boot camp before. You didn't ever have that kind of treatment at Paris Island if you were a Marine or at Fort Leonard Wood if you were in the Army. I don't know any other places I could speak about, Air Force and Navy, but we do know that this would have been the case in those places, but not here. The person who cares in this way, in a gentle way, not showing a lack of strength, but showing a sense of concern for those under his leadership as he trains them for war. These words are the family of the word gentle, there's more than one word, are regularly used of animals which have been tamed. It's used of a wild stallion who has been broken and still has all the power that that stallion had prior to being broken, but at the time. Of brokenness, that animal became responsive to the bit and bridle which were placed in its mouth. Plato, again, if I might allude to him, gives the illustration of the fact that this word gentle that Jesus uses to describe himself is a picture of a combination of gentleness, as we think of gentleness, but also of strength. He uses the illustration of a yard dog that protected the environment in which that family that he was, in effect, a part of would be protected by his bark, but not only his bark, also his bite, and how a dog can be ferocious to strangers. Have you ever seen that happen? But let the family member or members come into the picture without the intrusion of outsiders, and what happens? The dog's just as gentle as a lamb because it's gentle in the sense of strength and also gentleness. Jesus is gentle, and we too are to be gentle. Did Jesus ever show great strength? Well, the cross is the perfect example of that. He had every reason, He had every right to strike out at those who took His life, who made fun of Him and beat Him crucified Him. But he restrained himself. Do you know, strength is not always displayed in outburst of anger or violence. There's greater strength that's necessary to restrain oneself. Among the aspects of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is that of self-control. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Jesus is gentle. Men, are you gentle? Are you strength under control? Christ also describes Himself as being humble. As He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. His humility is seen writ large in His obedient approach to death, even death on a cross. Even though He was God, He submitted to the Lord God His Father and He humbled Himself. Humility is not denying the power one has, but acknowledging its source. Jesus was such a one. But let's use another human being, not a perfect human being. I'm going to allude to Daniel, the young teenager who found himself in the court of the king of Babylon. And you remember how he was able, with God's help, to avoid participating in things that were contrary to God's will for him. And his three friends were as well. And then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had this dream. And he calls Daniel in. Remember that? And he asked Daniel to tell him what the dream was. Nobody else could. All the diviners in the land couldn't tell. But he asked him. And he said, once you tell me what the dream is, then interpret its meaning to me. And do you remember what Joseph said? He said, sir, I can't do this. I can't tell you what your dream was or explain it, but there is a God in heaven. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, He can tell you this through me. Daniel got it. Joseph got it. He had a similar encounter with the great Pharaoh of his day. We are to be like Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter 2, one more time, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do you have that approach, men, in your home? Do you have that approach in your workplace? Do you have that approach in your community, in your church, to be a man of humility? Speaking of the church, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He said, All of you, young and old, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And what's very helpful for understanding what that conveyed in Peter's mind and what I'm sure the Spirit of God got across to those to whom he wrote it, the word clothe yourself is the identical word which the Apostle John uses in John 13 to describe Jesus taking on the towel of a slave to wash the dirty feet of His apostles. Jesus made Himself a slave to us, in effect. And we are to have that kind of mentality toward one another. We're to serve one another in love, is what Paul says, In Galatians 5.13. And this is, quite frankly, this is what real freedom is. The freedom to stoop like Christ stooped. The freedom to humble ourselves before one another. And find no task too menial. Nothing below us that we will not do to serve the body of Christ. To love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ is faithful, men. Christ is gentle. Combination of strength and gentleness. Christ is humble. And we're just scratching the surface here. It's enough to digest to think about these things. But these are three very important aspects of being a real man. I don't care how much weight you can lift. I don't care how much money you have in your bank account. I don't care how many people answer to you. That's not manhood. Manhood is being like Christ. What keeps us from being like Christ? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. This time looking at chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 and then verse 11. 1 Corinthians 13:4 Love is patient. It means long suffering if you have the king james version you'll read it that way or the new king james long suffering long suffering is a better word picture actually of what it's meant here love is kind is not jealous love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly it does not seek its own let me stop with that designation it does not seek its own the new international version translates this way does not insist on its own way this is what real love is, men. It does not insist on its own way. That's the epitome of selfishness. I want my way. That's my nature. I want it my way. In all the relationships of my life, I think I know best. But I need to understand that I must not insist on my own way. I must be sure if I'm going to be a man like Jesus Christ that I'm listening to what Jesus' picture of real manhood is and filtering all those urges which I have to demonstrate my, with my strength and all that. But the Lord's the one to whom we are to look and the one who gives us a picture of selflessness, Look at verse 11. First of all, what keeps us from being like Christ, we're just selfish. I I need to go on. I didn't read all of five. Excuse me, I got carried away there. It says, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Here again, the New International Version says about that last designation, it says, keeps no record of wrongs. Are you holding a grudge, man? You're less than a man if you are. You've got to let go. Think about Jesus. Did He have a right to hold a grudge? Oh, man. Aren't you glad He hasn't held a grudge against you? Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Has Christ forgiven you much, man? He's forgiven all your sin. The person who has sinned most against you doesn't have anything on you in terms of your sinning against the Lord. But the Lord Jesus forgives us and we, like Christ and like God the Father, are to forgive each other. Give up on your selfishness. Another reason, and this very closely connected, it's almost like the flip side of the selfishness coin is childishness. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, he transitioned. I did away with childish things. Unfortunately, the translators of the New American Standard Version picked this word child. Actually, it's the word for infant, a nursing child. And up until the time that Paul became a man, do you know when he became a man? He became a man on the road to Damascus. He was a real man. He was putting people in jail. He was giving given a death warrant that he could exercise on anybody who had turned away from Judaism to follow this false Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, he was full of fury and the Lord knocked him off of his horse. And he became a new man. And do you know his favorite designation? Do you know what Paul's favorite description of himself is? If you're familiar with your Bible, you know what he said. He's a man in Christ. He's a man in Christ Jesus. Over and over again. A man in Christ. A man in Christ. When he became one with Christ, that's when he became a man. And that's what makes a man. When we become one with Christ, remember he's a life-giving spirit. When we become one in Christ, then we can be like Christ. I know we're not like Christ all the time, but we're on the way. We need to claim the promise which says in the book of Philippians 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are in the pipeline. We are being moved by the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's imperceptible, but we're being moved forward to becoming more like Jesus. He's in us. And He'll work on you and me. He'll discipline us. He'll do whatever it takes to make a man out of you. A man of God. Not a man according to the world. Childishness. Paul did away with all that when he received Christ. The Corinthians, the most gifted, spiritually gifted church in the New Testament that we know of. They had all the gifts. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 says they lacked no gift, but they were the least mature. They acted like infants, babies. Let's take a quick look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 and follow. And I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. It's not wrong for a baby to need milk. Someone has to digest the food and give it in a form that the baby's system can digest. But pity the person who's been a follower of Christ for years and still hasn't learned to feed himself or herself on the Word of God and acts like a child selfishly. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? If we were to go to the nursery today, about this time they're getting hungry. They're wishing their mothers and daddies, and particularly the workers, are wishing that we'd get through in here. And, you know, when people get hungry, they get fussy. And they take it out on one another. Right? Right? We'd see an example of that, childishness. So let's conclude by looking at the steps to becoming a man or a woman, for that matter, like Christ. Four simple things. And they emerge from Matthew 11, 28 through 30, and then throughout the New Testament, the last one. Here's the first one. Come to Jesus. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for yourself. Come to me. Well, that's the first step. Come to Jesus. Some of you have never done that. You need to come to the Lord. And we're to keep on coming. Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him keep on coming to Me and keep on drinking. And out of his or her innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. It's not a one-time coming. It's coming again and again and again and again and drinking of the water of life in the person of Jesus. Come to Jesus. Here's the second thing. Come to be taught by Jesus. In Isaiah 50, verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to respond to weary ones who come into my life with the appropriate word. Morning by morning, He awakens me to listen. Do you know your best activity in your life? Your best activity in your life is to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to Him. Morning by morning, He awakens us to listen like disciples. This is what the Lord wants for you and me. This is how we become men. And just not pseudo-men. We become true men. We're taught by Jesus. He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me. The word translated learn is the verb from which the word disciple, which occurs over 260 times in your New Testament, it's the verb from which the word disciple comes. Come and be discipled by me. If Jesus spoke to you right now he said, at 1 o'clock today, it's not long now, 35 minutes, I'm going to be waiting at you at Corner Bakery, and I want a one-on-one with you. Would you go? You would go. And would you be doing a lot of chattering when you went? I don't think so. You'd be listening. And we have that invitation all the time, every day in our relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, we're to submit to Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That means submit to me. Submit to Jesus. That means sell out to Christ. Quit holding back. Give it all to the Lord. You're going to be less than a man until you do that. Less than a man. The last thing, trust Christ to live his life through you. We read from Romans chapter 5, remember, in our responsive reading. And verse 10 says, If then we've been reconciled, while we were enemies, we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more then shall we be saved by his life? What's that all about? Here's what it's about. When Christ died for us, He was raised from the dead for our justification. And when we received Christ in our lives, we received the life. Jesus' own description of Himself. I am the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Life. Jesus lives in us. This is the mystery of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the key to understanding how to be a man. Is to let the one authentic man, to not simply live in you, but to be taught by Him, to be discipled by Him, and then to submit your will to His and be like Him as He was to His Father and say, Lord, I want to do Your will. And you're going to be a man. You're going to be faithful. You're going to be gentle. And you're going to be humble. Paul's testimony was, I have been crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now, lives in me, get it? And the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Thank the Lord for being that kind of Lord, not just to die die for us, but to want to live in us so we could be His representatives, men, in our homes, in our workplace, in our community. And in our church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for being our mentor, for being our indweller. Oh, God, thank You. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us for settling for less than real manhood. We want to commit ourselves as men, Lord, to You today. If you're in that camp today, would you commit yourself? Would you really submit yourself to Jesus today? Just say, Lord, you know I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And he said, I know. Now I want you to trust me. Quit trying and trust. Let go. And let me be who I am in you. And you'll become the man you were designed to be. In Jesus' name we pray.